Well, aloha from Maui, Hawaii, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner, and our topic for the day today is the search for truth. This is a, a challenging and, and uh, a difficult topic, uh, the idea of a truth, knowing or discovering the truth, discerning the truth, is central to a great deal of philosophy. One of the central questions of philosophy is what is true or what is the truth? I've seen definitions, uh, most basic definitions of philosophy in general as the search for truth. And the reason I've decided to choose this as a, a topic for the day today is that I've been reflecting personally on my own story and my search for truth. Uh, in, um, in the newsletter this week, I talked about growing up as a baby boomer in the 1960s. I graduated from high school in 66. Um, 67 was the summer of love, and uh, graduated from college in 1970, so that was certainly the 60s. And I was a member, as I said in the newsletter, I guess, uh, an unofficial uh, member uh, with our out portfolio of uh, what was called at the time the love generation. But I never talked much about my interest in love, per se. I was interested in pretty girls, of course, but love I didn't really understand the way I do now. And I suppose uh, six months or a year from now, I'll have even a greater, more expanded understanding of it. That, too, is a central topic. In fact, the idea of love and truth may be pretty much the same concept, Um a little foreshadowing here into where we're headed. Love truth is sometimes even hyphenated as if it were one word, love hyphen truth, love truth, um, in, in certain philosophical writings. But while I didn't talk much about being a member of the love generation, I was, as a young person, obsessed, I'll say, by my search for truth. I burned for truth. I think I grew up feeling, as many in my generation did, lied to. I think previous generations were lied to as well. I, I, I don't know really how they dealt with that, uh, how they managed to become so cynical so quickly that Young people just accept that you're always going to be lied to, that most people can't be trusted, that a person you can trust to tell you the truth is an exception. I don't know. I think that's a rather cynical worldview, and certainly my generation did not buy that. For me, the love generation was the truth generation, and we were mad. We were angry at being lied to and deceived lied to about civil rights, lied to about women's rights, lied to about consumers' rights, lied to about 
the war, lied to about capitalism and free enterprise and liberty as in our constitution, lied to about a million things in American history that Columbus uh, did not commit genocide, uh, lied to about our treatment of the Native Americans here, not not only the by by the Puritans and the slave owners, but by the Spanish conquistadors before that, the devastation on this continent uh, by Europeans, which continues to this day, um, and we're still being lied to. It, it, it's come to the point in the last decade where. We're not only accepting that we're lied to by the movers and shakers and the opinion makers by our so-called leaders. Not only do they lie, I guess we've always known that, but um, increasingly it seems they can't tell the truth. Like everything's a lie. And that, that, that makes you start feeling sort of crazy. Like if you tell the truth, then... You want other people around you to tell the truth, and you want to build a network of, of of friends and family that you can trust to tell you the truth. You're swimming upstream in a society where truth is not revered, and truth generally, yeah, of course I'm using a broad brush, because there's a lot of wonderful people out, out there that will never lie and who are passionate about the truth, small T and capital T truth. I'll tell you the difference in a few minutes. And uh, so, yeah, I am generalizing, but generally speaking, having said that, it's hard to know who to trust. And uh, again, when you look at the, the rich and the powerful in government, in industry, in business, in finance, it's not just dominated by people who lie it's dominated by people who don't seem to know the difference between um a truth and just making it up as you go along in the last decade or so i've been especially fascinated by the explosion maybe maybe it's an explosion only in that i've become more aware of it rather than any real uh, change in the world, but it looks like there are more narcissists and uh, sociopaths, uh, psychopaths in government and industry than ever before. That to a large extent, people who have uh, had issues with power, megalomaniacs, um, people with enormous egos, uh, the narcissist is really a person who not only has a huge ego in a sense of uh, entitlement, but one, and this is interesting metaphysically, who obsesses on the appearance or upon the reflection of things. In other words, on materialism rather than on substance. And this is an important point. Remember, in philosophy, uh, the, the, I think in general, in philosophy, it's understood that the material world is not a substantial world. That's why we're going we're gonna to talk about relative truth in the world of form, in the material world today, that um, the, the world is constantly changing, and 
And the only truth we can find in the physical world is a relative truth. Again, this is sort of foreshadowing here where I'm going because I want to talk about really four areas today, subjective truth versus objective truth, but also the difference between relative truth and absolute truth. And narcissists and sociopaths, uh, people who obsess on the appearance of things, believe, of course, that the material world is the substantial world. And if there were any kind of spiritual uh, domain or realm, it would, of course, be less substantial than physical events, which uh, is heavy and uh, supportive, and uh, you can lean on it. It's not going to fall apart. But it's a world of separated form. Whereas any spiritual world that may exist uh, is more akin to air or water. We often hear these allegories uh, to, to air and water because it's uh, not solid per se. But in terms of substance, a philosopher understands that the spiritual world is the substantial world and the physical material world is non-substantial or unreal and not a world of truth that only real absolute truth can be found in the spiritual world and increasingly just to finish my point here i think our institutions our our governments uh, wall street uh, industry uh, to some extent i suppose the really big unions um, any institution, churches, uh, have increasingly become run by sociopaths. Again, I think that to a large extent it's always been the case. I just see the numbers growing. And especially in the United States, there's almost a cult of people that worship narcissists, people who are rich and powerful, uh, who assume that they are better than other people. They act as if they have a sense of entitlement. Uh, they never make any mistakes. They cannot admit to having made a mistake. And uh, you probably have them in your life. Uh, there is no cure, tragically, for narcissism or, or uh, uh, sociopathology to be a sociopath or what used to be called a psychopath. No cure is known. We're not sure of the cause, although in most cases uh, there's some pretty severe child abuse behind it, and an abnormal drive to uh, a lust for power and control um, that, again, would cause the rest of us who are looking for truth and honesty and love and justice, the different qualities, these are all qualities of love. You see, truth is a quality of love. Peace is a quality of love. Justice is a quality of love. Because they all dispel fear. That's how you know that truth is a quality of love, for example, or justice or, or peace. It, it dispels fear. That's what love does. So they're all qualities of love. And... What's largely missing is people seek power 
and by that I mean power over, the ability to defeat, not just to win. There's nothing wrong with wanting to win, to be victorious or to accomplish something wonderful, but the need to kill, to crush, to destroy your competition, uh, to plunder, to rape. Uh, these are power trips in really sick individuals. And you're going to hear more about this as uh, more books are written. I don't know that the media, the mass media in general, is going to be quick to jump on the story because, uh, like the other institutions already mentioned, the media is full of narcissists as well, people who they don't think they're better. They know they're better than you. They are superior to you. And uh, that could be its own program. I'm just saying, you know, if you are uh, the kind of person that is searching for truth and something real in the world, you're less likely to find it in the material world, in a world of form, a world of shadow, really, than in the spiritual uh, realms. But in order to contrast the physical with the metaphysical, uh, we have to we have to talk about relative truth versus absolute truth, and I'd also like to touch briefly on subjective truth and objective truth, and that'll pretty much be the scope of our discussion. There's a lot to be said about truth in logic, uh, reasoning. Uh, much of uh, the debate about truth in philosophy is uh, focused again on physics and the material world. We're going to the metaphysical, that which is beyond or behind the physical world, and explore truth in a spiritual sense uh, as well. But to pick up the thread here, um, personally, I've always been driven more by a search for truth than a search for love or peace or anything else. These other qualities of love have fall, fallen in line. I understand now, for example, there cannot be peace in the world without justice. So if we want truth and love, we have to work for peace. And if you're going to work for peace, you have to work for justice. And, and it all comes back to love and truth, you see, which is really all there is. The ultimate truth is that all there is is love. Nothing real other than love in its many qualities, like truth, peace, justice, and more. Kindness, uh, compassion, uh, mercy, uh, forgiveness, uh, uh, consideration, uh, patience, and tolerance, and generosity, and humor, and interest. And Love has many, many qualities in many faces. Capital L, love, not merely the emotion of uh, of romance or or lust or uh, uh, even uh, philos the root word of philosophy philos is friend and uh, friendship is one of the kinds of love as well the love truth truth our topic today let's talk first about um, oh I, I still haven't finished this thread uh, my, my transition just to finish up this personal side of it, my transition really from being a, a, a teenager growing up in the 60s, going to college, 
uh, studying journalism and broadcasting was I was going to tell the truth. Uh, <laughs> naively, I thought I could get into the the scenes, uh, and surely by age 20, I was working City Hall and State Capitol Beat in Michigan for WILS Radio. I worked my way through the second half of college as a reporter, doing mostly political reporting at the City Hall and State Capitol. And I cut my teeth on that stuff. And I never found a very much truth. And as I did more and more news and moved to Detroit after graduating, and then um, in my late 20s, I moved to Los Angeles, where I did radio for 35 years. Increasingly, I began to realize I'm not going to find out any truth here. I mean, I can tell news stories. I can say, uh, you know, that today uh, the Department of Energy made an announcement about a grant to build windmills or aero generators, blah, 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 blah. Uh, today the government said, today uh, local officials tell us, I mean, you're just rewriting press releases of what the establishment tells you to say. You don't really have the opportunity usually to, or, or the budget in most cases, to be a real investigative reporter, or much less to do commentary, which is where you put your opinions in, and editorials where you call for action. Well, that's left to station management, and you notice very few radio and TV stations do that anymore because the lines between news, commentary, and editorial are all blurred, all right? Fox News has made sure of that. So um, it's <laughs> we got rid of the Fairness Doctrine 20 years ago, and even though those are the people's airwaves, uh, they're used by private business to print money. Broadcasters just make money hand over, what's the expression, hand over fist? It just rolls in. They might as well have printing presses in the basement. Uh, so you're not going to find any truth there. So increasingly I became interested in psychology, anthropology, the social sciences, philosophy, and that led, or humanities, and that led me to philosophy in general. Both journalism and philosophy, I realized, has been a search for truth. So for me, this has been a lifelong obsession. I'll call it an obsession. And how I got damaged, uh, who lied to me, and who upset me in childhood, I don't know. If it was all my parents or the news media, uh, seems big, something generational. Because a lot of the, the anger in the love generation was anger at being lied to. And remember, we were raised, we were the first TV generation, so we were raised... Uh, all these cowboy movies and uh, Superman, and it was always truth, justice, and the American way. And the Lone Ranger would leave a silver bullet as a reminder of what was all good and fair and right and true about justice and, and the Wild West. And all of this, we, we were told, right, that these were great American values, but we were not having that same experience in the world. So 
when we get to the questions and comments um, in 15 or 20 minutes, I'd love to hear from you either by text or by telephone uh, any comments that you might have about how you feel about being lied to in your life and how angry you've become or frustrated in your life at trying to find a little bit of truth or even some relationships that we can rely on uh, where people always tell the truth just don't see any advantage in lying. One of the points I wanted to make about the narcissist, I guess I got lost in the details there, let me reemphasize it, is they can never admit to making mistake and they have absolutely no interest in real truth. They believe everybody is making stuff up as they go along. And if you say to a narcissist, for example, or a sociopath, again, most of our leaders, this is my argument, in business and government, are sociopaths. They have a sense of entitlement, and they really believe they are superior, and they fixate on the appearance as opposed to anything substantial. And they lie because they think everybody is making it up. They don't know the truth. They can't feel the truth. They have very little um, uh, intuitive sense and virtually no empathy. They can't feel their own feelings, so they can't empathize with other people. You know who I'm talking about now, right? (laughs) People you've worked with or worked for, uh, people you know maybe even in your family. And the people that know they're always right, they're just not interested in understanding, and anybody who disagrees with them is always wrong. And and they tell you that you're the crazy one. Uh, They never make mistakes. They never apologize. They don't know what you're talking about. They believe everybody is making it up as they go along. And I remember saying to a narcissist once, I said, you know, uh, people who who tell the truth have a way of spotting people who don't. And his response was, really? How? (laughs) How? He had no idea what I was talking about. And I said, well, it, it's it's obvious to people who tell the truth, but to someone like you who has no interest in the truth, uh, you, you wouldn't be able to recognize it. It's like trying to tell a person blind from birth about a sunset or uh, the way a rose looks. Uh, certain things are just ineffable and indescribable. And the narcissist or sociopath um, These are people that just cannot comprehend truth uh, or actually any of the qualities of love that we've talked about. This is what's so tragic. They don't care about justice. They're not interested in peace and love and harmony and everybody getting along. They They want to win. They want what they want. But that's not even enough. They need to plunder. They need to not just win, but destroy. Uh, they need. There's a lust, a bloodlust, um, for power, power over, power and control. Not the power of love, but the power of fear, the power of violence, the power of of conquering. And um, 
I think in this regard, the pendulum has really swung uh, about as far out as it as it can be. You know, we're still hearing uh, people in Congress talking about deregulating the oil company and having the taxpayer pay for the cleanups because uh, we wouldn't want to burden the private corporation. Uh, I mean, it's just absurd. It's just ridiculous. Uh, what you can uh, what you can buy with a little bit of money, money and power. You ever wonder why these guys that are in government, they're worth tens of millions and in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars. Old guys that could be retired and home playing with the grandkids, but they're still in there starting wars and trying to destroy the world. Why? Because they're addicted. Not to the money, to the power. You want to understand rape. You, men will never understand rape until they understand it as a crime of power, having little to do with sex and sexuality. That's why the victims of rape are often not attractive, per se. They're little children who are not sexually appealing at all. They're little children. They're little kids. They're not sex objects. Or um, old people. Old women. Why? Because they're powerless. Because the rapist can then steal their power, you see. Like a vampire searching for some kind of vitality. This is, a, I think, much more accurate description in this regard of what's happening today than anything we could talk about in a political context. You know, that's wow, there are conservative principles. No, they're mental health issues. Right? And again, we're talking about a group of people that have no interest in truth whatsoever. So it's the only thing I've cared about my whole life. Again, it, it um <laughs> I don't think I'm superior because I want truth. Uh, <laughs> that's the irony. People with a sense of superiority are, uh, as I've already said, generally people that have no interest in the truth. People who want to know the truth are willing to be wrong, you see. I'd rather understand than be right. No, I, I, I don't want to know the truth to be right. Often, learning the truth makes me wrong. I, I would rather understand. I don't care about right or wrong other than it being uh, subservient to this greater truth for uh, search for truth and understanding. That's what I want, is understanding. And often we have to give up the need to be right in order to understand. Um, maybe always in order to understand. Okay, a little on subjective and objective truth, and then we'll go to the... Uh, the relative and the absolute, because that's a big deal. And then we'll go to your questions and comments and 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 see if you can uh, relate to this. Again, you can listen or participate either by web feed or by uh, by telephone. And we'll talk about how to do that in just a minute. Hold on, let me have a little sip of coffee here. Okay. Um, I think the easiest to deal with is, uh, and by the way, there are there's a lot. I think I touched on this briefly a few minutes ago. There are many many areas of truth 
in philosophy that we're not even going to get near. There's um, the coherence theory of truth. There's the correspondence theory of truth. Uh, stuff I could... It's outside my field of interest, frankly, and I would just bore the hell out of you if I went with it. So I'm choosing, again, a metaphysical view. Um, much of logic, uh, that part of philosophy that deals with truth, is just looking at physical truth. Does truth correspond to the facts? That's one of the main theories of truth in philosophy is the law of correspondence. Uh, or the principle of, of uh, correspondence, does your sense of truth conform to the facts at hand? Well, that kind of model is obviously going to be limited to the material or the physical world. And we need to go to the metaphysical, so we're going to go beyond that and, and, and focus our attention instead on these four areas, subjective, objective, and then the... Um, we get to the uh, the relative and um, the universal, the absolute. So the first two, I guess, you're familiar with, subjective truth and objective truth. This bears on the relative nature of truth. The subjective truth is truth that's about the subject. Objective truth would be truth about the object or the world out there or everybody else. So subjective truth is personal. This is my truth. This is true for me. This may not be true for you. This is my truth. And usually we use a small t when we're talking about that kind of truth, right? This is not truth, justice in the American way. This is, hey, it's true for me. <laughs> Works for me, might work for you, right? Like, um, it's true that um, that uh, broccoli is delicious. Well, uh, that's not been my experience, frankly. Uh, uh, I can uh, I can eat it sometimes, especially if I dress it up just right or cook it in certain ways. But basically, as good as it is for you, I have a I have a problem with with broccoli. So. I would acknowledge the truth that it's good for me, but that it tastes good, nah. I would say that's not true. But you might love it. You just might eat it raw, eat it steamed, eat it ten different ways, and you just love your broccoli. In which case, broccoli is delicious. It's not only good for you, it tastes good too. And I go, man, I don't know what you're talking about. That's just not true. Well, of course it's true. Well, that's subjective truth. I remember in college we would have these great debates that would go on into the night, and one of the debates I had with some guys on the floor one night, um, I said guys on the floor because I'm, I'm so old. <laughs> we had segregated uh, gender-wise, not race-wise, but gender-wise segregated dormitories, um, all the men were in one dorm and the women were in, in another dorm scattered all over the campus. And we were talking one night about uh, the nature of a fact. Is there such a thing as a fact? And uh, I thought at the time, and now as I look back on it, this is very closely related to the search for truth and this 
theory of correspondence or the principle of correspondence. In metaphysics, the law of correspondence is something else altogether. That's as above, so below. That's an old alchemical uh, hermetic uh, axiom. Well, this principle of correspondence in philosophy around truth is, does it correspond, does your truth correspond to the facts of the situation? And we're debating here in this late night college dorm debate, is there such a thing as a fact? In other words, uh, uh, is there such a thing as a fact that is true and always true? We were arguing relative versus absolute. This is where we're going with our discussion today uh, as well. But I want to, first of all, just speak to the subjective and objective. They're, they're similar. There's some crossover here. But really we're talking about personal versus that which is generalized or non-personal. Subjective truth is, uh, as I say, I like what I like. This is true for me. Uh, I find people untrustworthy. Often the, the stereotypes, the generalizations, the, the broad brushes are the types of truths that many people rely on in their life, but which just aren't going to hold up. And the problem with a generalization is that although it's generally true, uh, you can't rely on it because the exception is going to catch you off guard. So there's no truth, per se, that you can rely on in the generalization you know, or the stereotype. Still, there is value in generalizing uh, and being discriminating. It depends on what we use to discriminate. You know, I remember Dr. King said, uh, essentially, it's okay to discriminate based on character, just don't discriminate based on silly stuff like ethnicity or uh, color of skin. That would, that's ridiculous, and yet that's what ignorant people do. Try to build themselves up, knowing they're ignorant by tearing other people down, bringing them down. It's always the least educated that are most likely to rely on the bigotry of stereotypes and and generalizations. This is one of the basic problems with so-called inductive logic, uh, if-then statements. Um, you just can't rely on them. You know, if uh, every, uh, I remember a standard def definition in uh, in college of inductive logic was if if every crow that I've ever seen is black, then all crows must be black. Uh, you have to be careful, you see, because if you've only seen a few dozen crows in your life, that's pretty risky to extrapolate that limited set with every crow there is. Therefore, all crows must be black. But if you've studied crows and studied people who study them, you studied the studies, and so your experience is you've You've personally seen thousands and thousands of crows and read everything there is to know, looked at all the pictures of crows, and now you're saying, based on all of this information, I believe all crows, therefore, are black. That's called inductive logic. Um, Sir Francis Bacon is often credited with having conceived of 
the model, and it has its value, but it's risky because it very easily becomes a lazy man's alternative to being reasonable, to just stereotype based on a few instances of this or that. So you have to be careful even here is a form of logic, so-called inductive logic, that cannot be relied upon to give you absolute truth. So subjective truth is how you feel about it. Uh, baseball is a wonderful game. Football is stupid. That's true for me. And yet um, the objective truth might be that more people like football than baseball. Um, or somebody really sharp in philosophy would say it's a false paradigm. You can't compare the two. We have this in journalism all the time, these false paradigms. Boy, if you really want to enjoy, if you really, how, how can I say this? Want to have an intriguing experiment watching the news. Notice how it's often reduced to this or that. Right? Like we either tolerate oil spills and burn dead dinosaurs in our cars, or we go back to Conestoga wagons and kerosene lamps. No electricity, right? It's either this or it's coal or nuclear. <laughs> it's we got to kill them over there, those terrorists, before we have to fight them over here. You see, these, these false paradigms, these false dichotomies, like the old loaded question about are you still beating your wife? No matter how you answer, <laughs> oh, so it's sort of like Dagwood and Blondie, you know. Uh, no matter how you answer, it's it's gonna be true for some people and untrue for other people. Subjective versus the objective truth. Okay, objective truth. Um, black and vertical stripes are slimming. Uh, subjective truth. I don't look good in either black or vertical stripes. I'm going to wear horizontal stripes, even though they make me look as wide as a Mack truck. Uh, you get a sense of what I'm talking about. Subjective versus objective truth. Uh, objective truth, uh, the shoreline is six miles away. Subjective truth, gosh, it looks like I could reach right out and touch it. You know? Um these are easy to imagine, this distinction. But when we get to the other areas, this, this relative versus absolute, this I think we should underscore or highlight or italicize because many people have a real rough time with the idea of relative truth. In fact, I dare say... Um, 60, 70 years ago, when Einstein was bringing forth his specific and general theories of relativity, the word creeped into or crept into the lexicon of people in the world, Americans in particular I'm thinking of, that's the culture I know, and increasingly people would say, well, that's relative. It's almost like saying, well, that's personal. Well, that would be a matter of your perspective or your particular point of view, or, hey, that might be true for you. Again, subjective truth. 
but it's not true for everybody. It's not universally true. And there have always been those sociopaths or psychopaths and narcissists and many of them conservative, but not limited to the right wing. There's just a lot of reactionaries out on the right who believe only in absolutes and always in absolutes. And I know this frustrates people who read, who think, who are fairly well-educated, but often we have a hard time putting our finger on what is it that's so frustrating about dealing with people who see everything in terms of absolutes, all black or all white. This, I believe, accounts for the popularity of right-wing radio, hate radio. Um, in America is that there is no third way uh, no middle ground no nuance no discussion of um, permutations and variations and alterations Uh, it's everything or nothing and that appeals to a lot of people who don't want to think who believe for some reason that it's hard to think this is one of the problems with th- that liberals and well-educated people in general have in appealing is that you have to think clearly about uh, complex issues in a complex fashion. You, you, you can't just say I'm pro-energy or anti-energy. We got a real energy problem in that we've relied on fossil fuels. We need to move toward something that is more sustainable, something that is greener, you know, um, with this horrible tragedy in the Gulf right now, I heard somebody contrast it to windmills and say, you know, a a windmill in the ocean falls over and goes splash. That's about it. Uh, Look at the devastation. I mean, there's a message in this. This is ridiculous. They want to build more nuclear power. We have nuclear power in the sky. This big fusion generator, 93 million miles away from us, and and we're protected by a, a, a magnetic field around the Earth that deflects uh, much of the uh, dangerous radioactivity that comes off of this nuclear power plant called the Sun. This fusion energy called the sun and uh, we can harvest it with uh, passive uh, heat collecting heat the the way a dark garden hose will run hot water for a minute when you first turn it on in the summer you can collect it as uh, not only passive heat but uh, voltage from photovoltaics uh, of course a uh, uh, you, you could argue that a windmill certainly is solar power because uh, the sun drives the winds and uh, uh, even tidal power or simple uh, uh, hydroelectric power like building dams or putting turb- uh, turbines in, uh, in a flow of water. Uh, that's, that's more likely the use of gravity. 
but they're talking even here in Hawaii about building a tidal power plant here in Maui and take advantage of the power in the moon um, uh, and the rotation of the earth. There's so many places that we can get power, but uh, there needs to be the will, there needs to be the vision. So the right wing loves, and, and narcissists uh, in general, reactionary thinkers, love absolutes. Um, deeply religious people are often people that will talk about all truth being absolute truth, and there is no relative truth. These people often are freaked out, upset, and threatened by this quote, liberal idea that truth is a relative thing. I'd like to argue today that some truth is relative and some truth is absolute. <laughs> that stop, it's a candy mint and a breath mint, you know, that both things are true. And the best way to think of this, I believe, is to consider a pendulum and on the bottom of the pendulum, where the weight would be, the part that swings to and fro, we call that south end, if you will, of the pendulum, the relative end, because the pendulum is going to swing left and right from this extreme across the middle, all variations and permutations and combinations, to the other extreme, then it's going to slow down and stop eventually as the centrifugal force is overcome by gravity and then the pendulum gets pulled back through the middle. Well, here's the 30 line, the 40-yard line, the 50-yard line, oh, the 40-yard line, the 30-yard line, swinging out to the other extreme, back and forth. And the truth is the whole playing field here between from one end zone to the other. This is the middle. When the Buddhist talks about the middle way, he or she doesn't just mean the 50-yard line on the football field. It's everything from end zone to end zone. The extremes are out of bounds. That's the end zone. That's the absolute. You know, That's uh, people saying that um, uh, capitalism is absolutely right and communism is absolutely wrong. Capitalism is good, communism is bad, and there's nothing else to choose from. Socialism? No, that's just another word for those commie pinkos. Capitalism? Oh, that's free enterprise. In all, really, is it? Anybody see any free markets lately? How'd you like to get into the oil business? There's five companies. How'd you like to get into the grocery business? There's five companies. How'd you like to get into finance? Well, there's five companies. What industry or, or field would you like to get into? You want to be a brewer? Well, there's only five companies. I'm not saying there's not opportunity for the microbrewer or the, uh, the financial services company that finds a niche that the big corporations can't serve or a little ma-and-pa food market that can provide a quality of service that the big supermarkets will never be able to match. I'm just saying uh, there is a big difference between a free market 
between free enterprise and monolithic uh, mega capitalism as it's practiced today. And the idea that they're all the same thing as part of some absolutist philosophy, as if something in the material world could be absolute, is absurd on the face. Um, it's all relative. It's all a matter of degree. And we have to challenge this kind of limited thinking. And, you know, this is where we're talking about liberal, not in a political sense, but liberal in a sense of being well-educated and exposed to the humanities. There are permutations and variations and combinations of things that, that, that nuance uh, these alternatives, this third way, and then the fourth possibility, and the fifth choice, and the sixth way of looking at things, that may be maddening to the conservative or the absolutist. But nevertheless, that's where our solutions exist. That's where truth is. And as far back as Tibetan, ancient Tibetan and ancient Egyptian philosophy the oldest of the ageless wisdom, it's been said by the great teachers that in the material world, nothing is true. It's all relative truth. There is no absolute truth in the world. So the top half of the pendulum would be the North Pole, so to speak, of the pendulum, the end that is fixed that does not move, that is unmoved, unmoving, unmovable, eternal and infinite, from which all of the motion and the lower part of the pendulum springs, that would be the absolute truth. And absolute you would capitalize, and that is metaphysical or spiritual truth. Metaphysical meaning beyond physics, beyond the material world. So, in fact, to a, a, a non-religious philosopher, the absolute is probably the best synonym there is for God. And for other spiritual people that find it heretical and blasphemous to talk about God as a being, as a form, as a guy walking around, way far away someplace, this 2,000-year-old, 3,000-year-old elementary view of the source, the creator of all things, being a separated form living outside and separated from its creation. It is heretical. It is blasphemous. It is creating the creator in our image rather than acknowledging that the books say just the opposite, that we are created in the Creator's image. And what does that mean? Maybe a better word for God or Yahweh or Jehovah or Allah is the Absolute. And this is part of the ageless wisdom. This is ancient, timeless philosophy. The old Egyptians, the Hermeticists, the pyramid builders, would refer to the divine, the most high, the absolute, or God, as the one thing, the one thing, the one life. And 
by that they mean the totality of all things. The absolute means the inclusive nature of everything. Every seemingly separated thing in the world, the, the stars and the galaxies and the galaxy clusters and the, the parallel universes and <laughs> everything that is contained within those universes, uh, right down to the, the quantum subatomic particles contained within the absolute and everything else, whatever is transcendent, whatever stands above the material world, that which is thought to be truly substantial because it's eternal and infinite and unchanging. That's why philosophers refuse to use a word like substantial to to refer to the material world. I made reference of this in the newsletter. I talked about the famous Heraclitus quote, or Heraclitus, some say, uh, that I'm sure you've all studied in philosophy at some point. It's, it's one of those classics, like if the tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it, does it really make a noise? Uh, a classic like that was Heraclitus saying, no man ever steps in the same river twice. Because the river, the water in the river is moved downstream. It's ever-changing. It's dynamic. It's in flux. Where is the truth? In something that is never the same twice. Now we're having fun, right? Now we're getting down to it. Wait a minute. You mean the reason that truth can only be absolute in a spiritual or metaphysical sense is that spirit is understood, at least at its source, to be unmovable, unmoving, unmoved, changing law, absolute law, which cannot be petitioned and and does not intervene, except that it is intervention itself. There is no separation. And that Nothing in the world, nothing in the material world, nothing in the world of separated forms could be true because it's always changing. The physical world is a world of impermanence. It is a world of flux. Everything that humans make is in perpetual decay. Certainly we do not want to be reminded of this when we go out to buy a house or even a car. We want to believe it will last forever, and it will not. It's in decay. The rust will get the car, and the termites will get the house. So what you own, first of all, you don't own it. The bank owns it. But even after you pay it off, what you own is in perpetual decay. What you own, you don't really possess. It's merely on loan from the universe. All material things are simply on loan to you, the materialist. <laughs> I like material things. Just remember that they're changing. They're, if it's made by man, it's in decay. And if it's made by nature, it's still going to cycle and change through its various seasons. 
And the philosopher understands this to be true because everything that appears to be material is in fact a reflection of something more substantial that is spiritual or metaphysical. And the spiritual or metaphysical is energy. And energy by its most fundamental nature vibrates. And if it vibrates, it changes. It has a peak and a valley. It moves back and forth. It oscillates. It rotates. It has its seasons. It's in-breath and it's out-breath. It's an expansion and contraction. In all things, the waves, the tides, the seasons, again, your breath. Everything goes round and round. It has a high point and a low point. It's always changing. It's always in flux. It's never the same twice, right down to the dance of electrons popping in and out of existence and subatomic particles, some of which don't even have mass. This region where energy behaves like matter and matter behaves like energy and we don't really understand quantum physics all that well. We're going to talk more about it, though, in the future, I promise you. More about quantum mechanics and more about string theory, which really unifies quantum mechanics with the bigger laws of physics. Cutting-edge stuff. We're gonna, we'll, we'll talk more about this because it really proves the ageless wisdom as, as true and valid. But do you see how the philosophers from time out of mind, men and women who have, who have attempted to embrace the ageless women, the, the ageless women, the ageless wisdom, <laughs> Mr. Freud, the ageless wisdom have come to accept that there cannot be truth in the material world, not really, only relative truth, because it's always in change. It's always in flux. All things pass. Nothing lasts. Everything is impermanent. Well, having said that, there is no truth here. Everything is relatively true. There is no swing of the pendulum so extreme that it is not influenced by its opposite polarity and therefore drawn back in the opposite direction. Slower, 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 stasis, and then return. Faster, 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 and then it passes the 50-yard line. Slower, 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 until these opposing forces of inertia and the gravity, centrifugal force and momentum, work themselves out in this yin and this yang of back and forth. But, you know, you can get to 99.1 or 99.9 to 0.1, but you'll never get to 100 zero. You can't get to the absolute in the swing of the pendulum except to go the, to the north end of the pendulum, the top of the pendulum from which all of the swinging proceeds. And here we find this fixed point taking up no space, existing in a sense as geometric points do outside of space, outside of time, therefore eternal and infinite and there is your absolute at the top of the pendulum, but down here in the earth, the bottom of the pendulum swinging back and forth. No absolute, 
all relative truth. Same thing on a bar magnet. There's no point on the bar magnet or in the field around the bar magnet where you can be influenced by one polarity but not the other. At all points on or around the bar magnet, you'll be influenced to a relative degree by both poles. Closer you get to the North Pole, you might be influenced. 90% of the magnetism you feel is is uh, uh, positive in this polarity and 10% is negative, but there's you can't get to a place on the bar magnet that is going to be all positive polarity and zero negative polarity or vice versa. It's always relative. And yet you have these screaming hate mongers in mass media, in your churches, in government, and in corporations setting up these false dichotomies as if all differences are opposites and all variations are part of an absolute truth or an absolute lie and there is no middle ground. You, you, it's imperative that as a person seeking a better understanding of yourself and the world around you, as a person seeking self-realization, that you understand the difference between relative truth in the world and absolute truth, which can only exist above and free of form in the substantial realms of spirit. The non-substantial realms of the material world are always in change, and therefore there is no truth, only relative truth, but no capital T truth in your dealings, your affairs in the material world. So we seek the absolute intuitively. There's no other way but to turn away, to close your eyes, to turn your attention through relaxation away from the physical senses, to realize what remains when stimulus from the physical world is ignored or falls away. And what remains are intuitive insights, some of them beautiful, profound, blinding, life-changing insights of absolute truths that when you awaken from your meditation, odd way to say it, since the meditation is the most awake part, uh, when you return to the so-called wide awake from your narrow awake focused meditation, you can bring some of that extra light and understanding of the absolute with you. And it's easier to put the relative truths of the material world uh, into context. Okay. Now, with that, let's go to uh, our questions. Again, if you're, uh, you know how this works. If you're listening to the web feed, you can type in the text box right on the page in front of you. If you don't see it, click the button that says Ask a Question. That'll toggle the box open and closed. Add your name and your city, and be sure and click on Submit so that I can see that. And if you're on the telephone and you have a question or a comment, press star 2 after you're all hooked up and 
you call the number and enter the conference uh, ID and and you're listening to me now, you can press star two and that'll raise your hand. I can see it on the console and I can unmute one at a time. So um, let's start with the uh, text uh, questions. See what folks have to say. Hold on a sec. Let me uh, check a couple of things real quickly here. All right, where's my Q&A? Here we go. All right, well, first of all, we have John Bowles in Pittsburgh with us this morning. Hello, John. He says, uh, hi, Michael. Great to be in class today live. And uh, I could make some stupid stupid joke about uh, attending class dead or something, but I won't. I just did. That was I knew that'd be stupid, but John will appreciate it. Better attending class live than not alive. John's been forced to so many people to listen to the podcast and uh, streaming audio because this hasn't been a convenient time for him, so he's saying that today he's able to be with us live, and thanks for that, John. Lorelai Hatch is with us from Tucson. She says, Aloha, Michael. Thanks for the great classes. Uh, over the last year or so, they've changed my life for the better. And the people around me um, changed my life for the better. And the people around me. Uh, peace and love to you and Doreen. Thanks, Lorelai. Carol Postel. Good morning, Carol. She's uh, in La Habra, and she says, uh, miss our Sunday phone calls. Hi to uh, Doreen as well. Carol was uh, for a long time part of a group I called the Ambassador Committee. That was, uh, we were a study group really, trying to find out what we could about using social networks uh, to promote all of the personal and spiritual development work we're doing here with this Ageless Wisdom Mystery School and the Finding Yourself in Paradise series, the premium audio series at Focused Passion. And for over a year, there was a small group of us that would meet with conference call, by conference call. And that sort of changed into our Thursday night meeting, which is a video conference. And... Uh, We've been meeting at 6.30 Pacific on Thursday night, but now we're thinking about maybe even moving that to 7 or 7.30. I hesitate to even mention it, but watch the newsletter. That's why you got to get the newsletter. All of the information um, about the Thursday night video conference, about the social net that we have at theagelesswisdom.ning.com, our own like it's like Facebook, but it's just for people that are interested in personal and spiritual development material. Theagelesswisdom.ning.com and all the other stuff that we're doing, the, the free text articles and the e-books and um, uh, uh, Maui seminars even, if you're going to know about our next uh, Maui seminar, uh, you got to get the newsletter. Go to theagelesswisdom.com if you're not getting it. And just click on the button that says free newsletter at theagelesswisdom.com.com.com. 
Phil Jaffe in Genova Park says, this is the best mystery school seminar I ever heard. Well, thank you, Phil. I appreciate that. And he says, I was uh, raised among the liars. My mother's cronies, let's see, among the New York legal community, and she was the, <laughs> poor Phil, she was the biggest liar of all, but she was mom, and I have to love her anyway. She sure loved me. Well, I'm glad you feel that way about it. Um, I think a lot of our parents, I speak for my mother, uh, I never really knew my father that well, uh, but she just thought it was uh, a kindness to lie, that it was good manners to lie. And it's not that you would tell tell falsehoods, It's it would be the lies of omission that would really frustrate me, right? where we play a game that something's not happening and we sort of ignore and deny the elephant in the room, so to speak. And uh, like the veiled racism in my family, uh, it just drove me crazy. It's like, why don't you say it? Why don't you speak it? What is this game? And it was just like, let's all make nice, nice and and not pretend that uh, so-and-so is a, a blatant bigot. Well, no, I don't want to pretend he's not a bigot. I want to address the truth of the fact that he is a bigot. He's filled with hate, and it's upsetting me. No, no, we got to be nicer. You know, it's the lies of omission, the, the, the denial and the refusal to even go there that I think uh, frustrate a lot of us. Uh, Patricia Vega says, the absolute must be the only truth as far as anything being in form has ever been able to conceive of. But we only know this since people have existed. The absolute may change, maybe. Well, if the absolute changed, of course, it would not be absolute. So, you know, we're starting with the definition here. We have a very high standard. Absolute, by definition, is whole, it's complete, um, there is nothing that is outside the absolute. Uh, this, again, is one of the greatest challenges that philosophers can present as spiritually oriented people of philosophy to religious people, especially um, the monotheistic religions, the uh, uh, Judeo-Christian and, and Muslim uh, religions, is if 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 your idea of good and evil is God and something that is not God, then what kind of God has something that exists outside of it? Like God then is only part of the story and would not be absolute if God does not include evil, right? If there's God and then something else, anything else, like I said something to somebody once about uh, their friend had cancer, was uh, was very sick, and I said, well, sometimes good things come out of illness and disease. And this person freaked out and said, nothing good can come from illness and disease. Illness and disease is of Satan. It's evil. It's the devil. It's not of God. I said, all things are of God. Then they freaked out even more. Satan is not of God. Satan is outside of God. Well, wait a minute. Whoa. 
then God is not absolute, then God is a demigod. You've just taken the Most High and brought him down a couple of notches and locked the Most High, the Most Divine, into some kind of mortal, separative struggle with that which is not God. And yet, to accept God as absolute, to accept that God includes and contains evil, the shadow, is very difficult for the religious people who read the books, who read the rules, who read the scriptures, but they're not taught, to, to, in most cases, to think for themselves. You know, to find spiritual development in a religion is rare. When when it's when it can be located, grab it, jump onto it. If you can find uh, a religion uh, or a particular, uh, you know, group, what, what what can I say? A parish, dioceses, uh, congregation, uh, fellowship, community, where spiritual growth is encouraged, uh, and you have to take the position that there's many things you don't understand. Uh, that's a much healthier environment in uh, than than oh no I've already got it figured out I already understand it. There's nothing new to learn, uh, and then you're presented with this and you go how am I gonna I have no tools I have no skills to deal with this grand paradox that Benner's talking about. Um, if if God is the absolute. The absolute is all that is. It would have to include evil. It would have to include that which opposes it. Right? Well, yeah. <laughs> Don't you have a shadow side? Don't you have a part of yourself that is acting against your best interest often? Don't we all know ambivalence and uh, feel the internal tug of war on a variety of issues? Well, of course. And uh, we're relative creatures. So the idea of absolute by its very definition is it could not change. Um, let's uh, go to the telephones. Oh, let me refresh. That looks like it for the, for the text. Let's go to the telephones and see if we have anybody with a hand raised. And I got a couple of people. Let's see what time it is. I got to watch the clock too good. It's only 20 after. Let's go to New Mexico, and we have Diane with us on the Mystery School. Hello, Diane. It's Michael. Hi. Nice to talk to you today. Welcome. Thanks for calling. Thanks. You know, I, I had to laugh about the one thing you said when you said you said, well, you know, a lot of good things come out of illness. <laughs> those Those types of challenges, and the person freaked out. But you're so right, you know, um, I had a really serious, I guess, challenge health-wise and needed surgery, and it was pretty complex. And I've got to tell you the gifts that came my way through that experience and recovery were amazing. I would not give that up for anything. You know, my, my relationship with my daughter and my grandchildren, I finally could stop long enough to um, be in their home while I was recovering and be able to watch their lives. My grandchildren got to know me. 
they would have picnics in the evening next to my hospital bed on the floor, and we talked. What a gift to my life. Um, and and the blessings just went on and on and on. And absolutely from what seems to be, you know, huge challenges come all the blessings. So I had to laugh when you said they freaked out because I really understand that. And then my other comment was... Let me say that's true also for... Uh... Uh, injury and like uh, even near death or especially near death experience uh, we talk about the silver lining and and sometimes it seems uh, that's what it takes is a real tragedy or disaster in our lives to to turn everything upside down and inside out and reorder things and we see things in a new light and lo and behold it's not just a, a silver lining it's like this whole big gift a whole bunch of packages <laughs> yes and an awareness because that experience literally set me on a path to change my life dramatically yeah. there you go what a gift what a gift yeah and then my other comment is i think it's easy for us to look around at this world and what we've experienced uh in our country over the last decade and go wow can it get any worse? And I keep thinking of what my father once told me, that the pendulum swings. And before it swings back to the good, it comes to a really dark time. And I think about what you say about this cultural change that we're all experiencing now. You know, in business, what I see in our country is that um, they literally have created and built narcissistic teams of management that are strictly goal-oriented and um, self-recognition-oriented. The people don't count. And with the economy's challenges right now, that plays right into building those types of teams. And what I've seen happen in major corporations is that they're beginning their success rate, their their ability to uh, to create good projects and to work well with customers is beginning to collapse, and I find that interesting. And I think it, you know, it's it's at a point where it's about as bad as it can get, and so the pendulum should be swinging soon. <laughs> I think so. I think yeah. so. You you look at. Uh, Again, the last 10 years have been disastrous in, oh, in yeah. so many ways. And a lot of progressive thinkers are getting sort of tired of saying, I told you so. Whether exactly. it's uh, human rights or the wars or the ecology, uh, energy issues, education, on and on and on. Or uh, lean. Yeah. yeah. You take the human element out and make everything about money and nothing's going to work right. Exactly. Um, it's got to be for the greater good of, of of people. And money's part of it. Nothing wrong with money. We all like money. Money's good. It's just that you can't put it in the same class as people. That's what we're here to do is be the best we can be and do that so that we can be of greater service to each other and help out. That's That's what matters. Well, and when people work in concert and with consideration for one another, it's amazing what can be created. And when you take that out of the equation with the, you know, looking for the next annual report and the profit margins, 
and those are the only considerations, then what they create is not necessarily, you know, as good, as pure, as successful, and it begins to collapse. Yeah, I think so. Diane, I'm on a bit of a timeline today. Hey, talk to you later. Good. I look forward to it. Thanks for calling. Uh, Bye-bye. Aloha. Let's go to um, Robert in West Los Angeles. Hello, Robert. You're in the Mystery School with Michael. How are you doing? Hello, Michael. Uh, good morning. How are good morning. you? I'm better and better. Thank you, buddy. Hey, it's been a few weeks since we talked last. Hey, I realize you're short on time, but uh, I got in on the tail end of your uh, presentation. And I was uh, thinking about Diane's, uh, what uh, Diane was contributing in the um, you know, in conversations about the absolute and our quest for the absolute and our drive to either perceive as the absolute does, we can never perceive it as an object. All we could do would be perhaps to perceive its state of being. But it probably exists in another order of reality that we won't reach as embodied forms. Yeah. But on a practical level, when people speak of spiritualization, you think about disease in particular, uh, most of our disease is a result of not heeding subtle signals which are presented to us uh, to let us know that we are definitely doing something that's out of harmony with a very real order. Injury too. Injury too that exists behind the scene. Right. And... Yeah, some people would include what we call accidents in this, right, ca- right. In this category, right? Which are well, really on purposes. Yeah, which they can have ver- a purpose. Yeah, they <laughs> they seem to, in many cases, have a purpose. The universe seems to be purposeful. So the difference between, say, the person who is not quote following the spiritual path and one who is would be uh, simply that. The spiritual person is seeking to heed the warning, heed the signal at its subtlest inception point, at the inception point. When it first comes into consciousness, is that little itty-bitty inkling of an almost nothing that we might even just not even notice as it flows across the, the... screen of awareness. But the closer we can get to heeding that and then acting upon it with a meaningful change, uh, the closer we get to being in harmony with whatever this absolute ultimately is, which we're a part of. Um, people are always looking for, well, what can I do that's practical? You know, what can I, when, you st- when we start talking about the absolute Boy, it gets breezy, and, and you know it's, it's it's what you know. It, we find ourselves looping into paradox after paradox. Pretty soon, the mind just wants to go into a fetal position, and perhaps that's its function. You know, perhaps the function of contemplating and entertaining these ideas is that at some point, the mind, as Krishnamurti said, will realize its fallibility and it'll stop. Yeah. Yeah, it's but, not likely that uh, uh, in form with the with the, the mind that we have and the brain, which is largely a filter, uh, 
in spite of its enabling capacity, it also filters awareness and consciousness. I don't see that any of us could attain an absolute understanding of anything. We can make an approach, perhaps, but um, other than to, you know, again, I'll speak for myself here, even to go with the only absolute I know, which is uh, love is truth. Truth is love. And to go no further is still, for me, to make a a reach and a grasp. And I, I don't know that that's true. I just believe that that's true. I believe very, very strongly that that's true. If I was a little more lazy rhetorically, I could say I know it's true, that love is the only truth and and all truth is love. But i got to admit, I don't know that. That's even, even that is a stretch. And, and so I think the m- most we could hope for is to make an approach toward uh, an ever higher, uh, more elevated perspective of all the truth that's spread out before us and below us. Uh, you know, the, the more your perspective is elevated, the broader your horizon, you'll see more truth and more truth. But we're still making the approach. Again, I th- I think if we if if we could use that Christian phrase that I think is so grossly misunderstood, where Christ talked about I am the way and the light, and nobody comes to the Father but through me. If Christ represents the soul, if that's what the Christos is, the soul or the Son of the Absolute, uh, that would be the love of God and the father aspect or the absolute would be the totality, of course, but we could label it the will. So the approach to the absolute or the will of God or the plan, whatever you want to call it, the highest perspective, the most inclusive view, would be through love. Nobody comes to the father but through me. So my approach to the absolute is to put my attention on love, keep trying to understand what that means, practicing it in my life, which there's a challenge, right, to take it out into the world. Like like the teachers say, after meditation, there's still chop wood, carry water. Before meditation, chop wood, carry water. After meditation, the dirty laundry, you know, <laughs> it's still got this world to, to deal with, and it's constant challenges. So uh, I, I think an approach is about the, from my view, the the best we can do. I don't think we could know the absolute unless we were, in the end, right, able to accomplish this return home mission and uh, lose the self into the oneness of things, and maybe we could experience the absolute again. I don't know. Time will tell. Well, there is that great line from the T.S. Eliot poem, Little Gidding, which talks about returning to that place that was in the beginning and knowing it for the first time. Yeah, that's very nice. And uh, that's that's part of what this, this uh, thing called life is about, coming to a conscious awareness of awareness itself, a being, being recognizing itself in all the states that human being... Uh, uh, that is encapsulated in human being that that uh, can be witnessed, realized in human being. Um, 
Uh, there's so much more we could say about it. Love and the, 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 the saying that's talked about with Christ, so misunderstood, completely misunderstood. Totally, totally. Because they distorted. Very few people don't look at the the, court, the 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 accompanying saying, which is, the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. That's right. And if you look at the same, if you look at that same statement that you cited, if Christ is a consciousness, a state of awareness, right, that is completely devoid of stories and theologies and concepts and all the rest of it, then in a mystical sense, the way to the Father is through a complete abandonment of all the ideation that we've ever used to buoy up this false self and keep us kind of emotionally yeah. sound. And, Isn't that uh, odd? That, that's the irony, one of the ironies that uh, some old mystic said once, you cannot think your way to God. I got to go, Robert. I'm on the timeline today. My apologies, but thank you again for calling, and it's good to hear from you. I appreciate you being here live. Likewise. Aloha. Aloha. Normally, we do a a guided visualization, um, guided imagery, or guided meditation exercise. Um, I have to run downtown with uh, Doreen, so I'm not going to have time to do that. But what I'll suggest that you do on your own and you can do it right now as we sign off, or later today or later in the week or throughout the week, is I'd like you to simply ponder to mull over in your contemplative states and uh, in your contemplation and your meditation that, that whole idea of the pendulum with the absolute being the top of the pendulum and the relative being the bottom. Again, the absolute or the top represents the spiritual source of all things, that which is substantial, that which is capital T, true. And the bottom of the pendulum being the relative truth that extends itself into a world of form, not substantial because it's always in change, never absolutely true because all things must pass. No man steps in the same river twice. And even contemplate the path between the two. Notice as you move up the string or the chain from the bottom of the pendulum to the top, the arc gets more narrow, less wide as you approach, as you make that approach. Right? You could say the top, the absolute, is the father aspect. The bottom of the pendulum would be what a Christian would call the Holy Spirit or the mother aspect. The path, the chain or the string that connects the moving bottom to the immovable, eternal and infinite top, that path would be the Son, the Christos. I am the way. And uh, if you turn that over, ponder it, walk around it, Consider it passively and intuitively in a state of nice deep relaxation, a nice meditative state. I think it will not only open your mind and your heart, but allow you to see the relative truth in the physical world around you then uh, with much more clarity and understanding. And with that, i got to run. 
Thank you so much for being here. Um, check the newsletter if you can join us on Thursday night for the video conference. And uh, also, I want you to sign up for the Ning site if you've yet to do that. The age, uh, the wisdom dot n i n g like Nancy i n g. The w's dot the wisdom dot ning dot com. It's a social net for you people. You're gonna dig it. Add some music, add some videos, add some JPEGs, fill out your profile, get to know some of the other people. We're just a couple of months old. We've already got 100 members there, and I'd like to grow the thing. It's pretty much just me posting stuff, but start a discussion thread. And, and uh, I, I put a post up there of a brand-new book that just came out that I highly recommend in the wisdom tradition called When the Soul Awakens. Check that out and get to know each other, message each other, have some fun. There's live chat and there are all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, we're paying for that and providing it to you for free. So just one of our services. And then, of course, check out the at least the free account at focusedpassion.com with the ED. It's the w's.focusedpassion.com where you can get six free programs premium studio quality audio programs in personal and spiritual development hosted by me and my buddy Steve Snyder. And these programs include a guided imagery exercise. Six are free if you just leave your email. And if you want to subscribe, it's $3.96 a month. You can also buy individual programs for all of 99 cents. These are Programs that run 45 to 55 minutes long for 99 cents. Pretty cool. Build your collection. All right. Thanks for listening and being here, and uh, hope you'll join us next week live if possible for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha. <laughs>